Hey, homegirls and homeboys, I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda, and we're the Homicide Homegirls. Just two best friends discussing true crime cases that they can't stop obsessing over. If you're like us and your guilty pleasure is serial killer documentaries, whodunit mysteries, and procedural police shows, then you're in the right place. So buckle up, Buttercup, grab an adult beverage, and get ready, because on Wednesdays, we talk murder. Hey guys. Hey everyone. We are back. Homegirls back. All right. Oh, I was, don't sue me. No, I was thinking it was a Backstreet reference and then I was like. It was. That didn't sound right. But then it was like, that did sound right. Yeah, it was. Um, And I have truly missed you giant bunch of weirdos. But uh. Before, like, we really jump in, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for your understanding and all of the heartfelt messages and well wishes that I got after posting about my house flooding. Um, it's been pretty rough, to say the least, you know, but, uh, and if you're one of our normal listeners, you know that my husband and I just purchased our home in January of this year. Like, I had not even finished decorating my house, and getting things like I wanted them so watching my house flood in mid-May was gut-wrenching um we ended up with nine inches of water in our playroom sunroom which is kind of like an addition that the previous owners had added um and like two to three inches throughout our whole house it wasn't like a few rooms no it was a whole house um and you'd be surprised how much damage two inches of water will do like I was surprised um but you know we do have flood insurance and we're in the process of having our home repaired so i'm um i just lost my spot oh um we actually just got new sheetrock put back in so like we're making progress um i've been trying to look on the bright side and uh just getting like a brand new house basically i get to pick everything my house is gonna be bomb and we will 1000 percent be hosting every single holiday from now on Friendsgiving, Friendsmas, Galentine's Day, and Freester? Is that a thing? I'm making it a thing? Freester? Like Friends Easter? (laughs) Making it a thing. Um, Anyway, my point is, thank you guys for being so awesome and understanding throughout this process. I love you guys. But we're back, and hopefully we don't get, you know. There's a reason everything happens. There's a silver lining in everything. Yeah, like hopefully we don't get pushed back anymore but you know if we do we do so it is what it is so um another new development um amanda moved into her own apartment how's that for adulting yeah we are actually recording in her new babe cave right now and i'm hella excited about it um we'll be recording here for the foreseeable future because my house is literally like there's nothing in it we can't even like it would be the worst echo Echo, yeah yeah like the worst echoing you ever heard in your entire life so hopefully the acoustics sound okay in here if not oh fucking well 
Huh? I said, if not, oh fucking well. Yeah, if you hear her neighbor stomping around upstairs. Yeah, he's heavy footed. Yeah, sorry about it. If you hear her cat jingling around. Little baby. Yeah, yep. she's got a bell on now. Yeah. So. so just letting you guys know. All right, let's get down to actual podcast business. So we got a new amazing five-star review, and it's titled Thank You with a Heart Emoji, and it's from a user named Just a Girl from Ode Y-O, W-Y-O, mm-hmm. which I'm assuming is Wyoming. Mm-hmm. And it still amazes me that we have people from all over the U.S. and the world that listen to us. But anyway, the review read, quote, by far my favorite podcast. I haven't been listening for long, but I do listen daily, and so far I haven't been the least bit disappointed. I could be having the absolute worst day, and I always laugh at least once throughout the episodes, so thanks for that, end quote. That's so sweet. I read that one, I think, yesterday. I went back and looked. Thank you so much. Um, I came across that review first thing, like, one random dreary Monday morning, and I was like, that is exactly what I needed to Mm -hmm. start my week off on a good note, so thank you. Um, also, um, yeah, leave us some reviews. We're going to keep reading them. I love them. Like, I know, I know my voice is hella annoying. So the fact that anyone listens to us blows my mind. But anyway, (laughs) oh, I told Ariel that yesterday. Um, I started like my mornings off. It just started it like two days ago. Um, while I'm getting ready in the morning, listening to a self-help podcast mm-hmm. just you know get you in a good mood right um and like ariel suggested a few and i was like nope didn't get past two minutes i couldn't stand her voice right. and i was like i wonder <laughs> how many people <laughs> listen to us and they do the same because like probably everyone but yeah. whatever oh there goes there oh goes i didn't cat. even think it, yeah. it like it's bye harley deuces bye bitch <laughs> Anyway, so as I'm sure you've probably guessed from the title of the episode, today we are covering the Cleveland kidnapping, well, kidnappings of Michelle Knight, Gina DeJesus, and Amanda Berry um, that took place in Cleveland, Ohio from August 2002 to May of 2013. And this is a story of survival, which makes me really happy. But with these three girls, now women, endured at the hands of the monster who held them captive for 10 plus years is truly horrific and i want to warn you guys that this case is disturbing and includes topics like rape and torture so listener discretion is advised so this case has been on my list to cover for a while um i was actually um mainly because i remember exactly where i was when the girls were freed in may of 2013 i was in grad school working on my mba and I remember watching the news and seeing that there were these three girls who had been missing for a decade and had been found alive in Cleveland. And I just remember being glued to the news for like days and weeks and just like absorbing like every little bit of information I could about it, you know, because it was like a huge story, mm-hmm. you know, my, my roommates, I'm sure got tired of that, me watching it like all the time. <laughs> I was so happy and thankful that these girls had been found but as more details came out i was like super sad after hearing everything that they went through um and you know what if i thought i was sad hearing about what they experienced in the news that was nothing tip of the iceberg yes compared to actually doing the research for this case like i read a couple books that i'm gonna talk about in a minute i've cried so if i cry during this episode or part two potentially part three we don't know yet we'll see it's definitely gonna be two parts maybe three 
it just kind of depends how it goes um so yeah if i cry don't you know just don't judge me too much so a lot of my research came from books written by the actual victims well survivors themselves i don't like the term victim they're survivors um so first i read finding me a decade of darkness a life reclaimed by michelle knight and then i also read hope a memoir of survival in cleveland by amanda berry and gina de jesus both of these books were extremely great reads and i recommend them to everyone i did include a lot in my episode but i still feel like i barely scratched the surface of the girls stories so definitely go out and buy their books and you know support them and another big source of my information for this episode was an episode that 2020 did on um the cleveland kidnappings titled trapped and if anyone wants to watch it's season 42 episode 12 and it aired on january 3rd 2020 um i was pretty excited about that episode because robin roberts was the one interviewing the girls and i love her um some of you may not know but she's from louisiana and she actually graduated from southeastern louisiana university um just like me and she was also a pretty bomb basketball player there and southeastern even retired her jersey number 21 in 2011 and I also love Robin's sister, Sally Ann Roberts. Um, all my Louisiana people know exactly who I'm talking about. Sally Ann is literally burned into my brain as like a huge part of my childhood because I watched her every single night on the news with my mom as like the anchor. But anyways, obviously this will, like I said, it's likely going to be a two-part case because there's like there's too much information just to put it into one episode, you know? And I didn't want to, like, just breeze through it because these girls deserve to have their stories told, you know? And I wanted to do them justice, you know? Yeah. I've said, you know, like, 6,000 times. You always say you know. You know what I'm saying? And, like, you didn't even explain what you were saying every single time. (laughs) I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm. Sorry about it. (laughs) So, let's get going, shall we? Uh, Get a drink because this one is rough. Oh, there it is. There it is. So, Michelle Knight had a pretty, ugh, ew, that was gross. How I just was like, that was gross. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably going to leave it in there because it's funny, but that's still. Disgusting. That's disgusting. So, Michelle had a pretty rough childhood. Um, she grew up on the um, west side of Cleveland, which is historically, like, the area of Cleveland known for higher rates of poverty and crime. Basically, like, the quote-unquote wrong side of the tracks if you will. Um, Michelle's family was extremely poor and struggled to make ends meet and support Michelle and her younger twin brothers that were named Eddie and Freddie, actually. Um, In her book, Finding Me, A Decade of Darkness, A Life Reclaimed, Michelle remembered living in her parents' brown station wagon along with her parents, her younger brothers, and a younger cousin, all in one station wagon. Oftentimes, Michelle's father would park the car next to an apple orchard, and that's what Michelle and her siblings would live on, just apples. She estimated that they lived in the car for about a year, but once they moved, things weren't much better. According to Michelle, the house was in the ghetto, and they didn't live there very long. Um, Her family would regularly move, like, every two to three months. And in one house Michelle's family lived in, there were a total of 12 people living there. And it wasn't like a big house, you know? There I go again. But it was usually relatives, aunts, uncles, cousins. But sometimes there were also strangers 
living there with them, which I don't feel like is safe when you have kids. Right. When Michelle was around five years old, she returned to her bed after getting a drink of water in the middle of the night to find a male family member in her bed. As you can probably imagine, the man started to molest and sexually assault Michelle at the age of five. Like, that just made my heart hurt, you know? Especially knowing, like, when I was reading the book, knowing what she went through after that, you know? The fact that it started out, like, at age five, you know? Stop saying you know. Oh, sorry. I can't help it. And as these monsters usually do, the man threatened Michelle and told her that he would kill her if she told anyone. Like, what an absolute piece of garbage. Um, Because she was so scared from being threatened, she didn't tell her parents or anyone else. And at first, he he would assault her a few times a week, but as she got older... The frequency of the assaults had increased to almost daily. So, Michelle's life was not off to a great start, and my heart just breaks for her. And I'm not trying to judge Michelle's parents because I know this sort of thing happens all the time, but I really don't understand how this is happening under their noses, literally, and they didn't know. You know I, I guess if it happens when you're sleeping, you have no idea. Yeah, and you know, it's a different yeah. day and time, like right but i mean that's still mind-blowing to me but again that's why no one will ever ever live with my husband and our children because sexual abuse is usually perpetrated by someone known to the victim and according to meganslaw.ca.gov over 90 percent of sexual abuse victims know their offender with almost half of those offenders being family members i'll fucking kill somebody thank you and look mighty fucking cute in my mugshot. Exactly. Uh, thank you and God bless. <laughs> what? So y'all could put some money on my books. Right. And um, just in case you guys aren't aware of the story behind Megan's Law in California, because that was the website that I found that information on. According to the same website I referenced above, California's Megan's Law was enacted in 1996 as Penal Code Section 290.46. And it mandates the California Department of Justice, uh, CADOJ, California DOJ, to notify the public about specified registered sex offenders. Megan's Law also authorizes local law enforcement agencies to notify the public about sex offender registrants found to be posing a risk to public safety. Megan's Law is named after seven-year-old Megan Kanka, who was raped and killed by a known child molester who had moved across the street from the family without her not without their knowledge. So in the wake of that tragedy, the Kankas sought to have local communities warned about sex offenders in the area. All states in the US now have some form of Megan's Law. So, you know, like you get those little things in the mail, like a sex mm-hmm. offender lives within X amount of feet or miles or whatever of you. And you know I'm a slut for statistics and bringing other true crime stories into my episode, so that was just a little bit of lanyap for you guys. Have we described what lanyap means? I think we did, but if you don't know or if you don't remember, lanyap down in Louisiana just means a little bit of something extra, just bonus like. Oh, we have. Yeah, I think because we are lanyap because we are we are extra as fuck. Yeah. But back to Michelle. So, from a super young age, 
Michelle took over the responsibilities and duties of caring for her younger brothers and cousins. And she did the very best she could, but things like soap and toothpaste were usually pretty scarce in their home. Michelle recalled one time when she used a heater slash radiator to cook hot dogs for herself and her siblings. Like, honestly, that's pretty ingenious, but also really sad. As far as school goes, Michelle would regularly miss one or two days weekly. So naturally, she fell behind her classmates relatively quickly. She had a few teachers who expressed concern about her situation, but no one ever did anything to help her. That's like, that's just devastating. Like, that's heartbreaking, you know, that these teachers just saw, like, they knew something was wrong, but they didn't say anything. But again, I guess, what what can you really do, you know? So, God damn it, now I'm going to be, like, so aware of me saying, you know. Michelle didn't really have any friends. Um, Most of the other kids made fun of her for her tattered clothes, her dirty hair, her unbrushed teeth, etc. Which is so sad to me that kids can be so mean. It just kind of goes to show you that you have literally no idea what someone's going through at home. So just be nice to people. Like, just, just be nice to everybody. That's what I try to teach my kids. Reason 872, I'm not having kids. <laughs> yeah. Due to all the turmoil in Michelle's life, she was failing almost every subject, but she said art was the only class that she actually liked, and she often used it as escape from her as an escape from her life. Her most cherished possessions at home were her notebook and her pencils. Um, Michelle also loved to listen to music, mostly R&B, and she also loved reading Stephen King horror novels. Like, same. Um, By her 15th birthday, Michelle decided she'd had enough of the abuse and she was going to do something about it. So, one night around Thanksgiving, Michelle laced the man's bourbon with two sleeping pills. You go, girl. Right? Right? So, after dosing his drink, Michelle waited for him to pass out, then got dressed, grabbed her backpack that she had stuffed with all her clothes and her art supplies, and then she snuck out of the bathroom window. Michelle walked until she found a small park. There, she found a stack of old newspapers on a bench and spread them out underneath a park bench and used her backpack as a pillow, and that's where Michelle slept, or at least where she attempted to sleep. During the day, Michelle walked constantly, trying to keep her head down so no one would recognize her or call the cops, thinking she was a young child. Michelle was extremely short. She stood a whole four feet, two inches tall. So it would have been pretty easy for someone to mistake her for a child. Michelle spent a few nights under the park bench, but she was freezing. I mean, this is in Cleveland. I don't know if I said that, but this is in Cleveland, Ohio. So like it's freezing around Thanksgiving, you know? So after freezing for a couple nights, um, Michelle realized she had to find a better form of shelter. Eventually, she found a highway overpass where she set up camp. She found a garbage can with a lid and drug it back to the overpass where she used it as a makeshift bedroom. And because she was so short, she could basically just pull her legs in and fit completely into the trash can. Which kept her kind of warm at night. So after being homeless for a week, Michelle passed a Baptist church while walking on Thanksgiving. She could smell the food cooking inside, so she stopped on the sidewalk to take in the wonderful aroma wafting from the open doors. A tall black man, who Michelle later learned was the pastor of the church, noticed Michelle and told her that she should come in and get something to eat. 
So Michelle got in line behind a dozen or so other people and waited to get her meal. Michelle, not knowing when she'd have an opportunity to eat again, had three helpings that day. After dinner, the pastor found a coat for Michelle because he noticed that she didn't have one. And even though the coat was a few sizes too big, Michelle was so grateful to have something that would, you know, keep her warm. The church workers also gave anyone who had come to dinner a bag donated from local charities that contained a few toiletry items. Michelle also learned that the church gave out meals um, every day, at every weekday at 5 p.m. So she was excited to have found a place where she could get a warm meal and she made sure to go every weeknight. I think that's pretty awesome. Amanda's shaking her head. <laughs> She's not audibly. <laughs> She's not audibly responding, but. So after being homeless for a couple weeks, a man found Michelle in her trash can under the overpass in the middle of the night and offered her a job as a drug runner. Excuse me, what? Yeah. Illegal drug, like, yeah. like an apothecary or? No, like. <laughs> okay. No, like marijuana, like <laughs> illegal drugs. Michelle was a bit nervous, but the guy who introduced himself as Sniper seemed. Seems legit. Yeah. He seemed nice enough and she figured she didn't really have much to lose. I mean, she was living in a garbage can under an overpass. So she got into Sniper's car and they drove to Sniper's house where he gave Michelle a clean pair of pajamas and let her take a shower before giving her his bed to sleep in while he slept on the couch. Don't don't be nervous. Like he's not like he didn't do anything like nefarious to her. So because I was like reading and I was like, oh, God, this is not going to be good. So the next morning, Sniper cooked breakfast and introduced Michelle to his other runner, 16 year old Roderick. Um, the next day, Sniper handed Michelle a 22 Glock and brought her to a secluded area in the woods for target practice. Sometime around January or February, so a couple months later, Sniper and Roderick got busted on a run. And Roderick was able to get away, so he went back to the house and told Michelle they had to go. Roderick and Michelle packed their things and went back to Michelle's underpass. She was surprised that her garbage can was actually still there. So Roderick swiped his own garbage can and they were doing okay until about two weeks later when they were heading to the Baptist church for a hot meal. Well, right as they were going up onto the street from the over under the overpass, Michelle recognized a woman who was friends with her parents and she tried to hide when she spotted her, but the damage was done. The woman had seen Michelle too and she immediately called Michelle's father. Not long after, Michelle's father pulled up and forced her into his car, then slapped her on the side of her head for running away. She's like 15 at the time. And when he saw Michelle's father, Roderick got spooked and took off down a side street, and Michelle never saw him again. So she's like, has no idea what happened to him. But upon her return home, the abuse and rape from Michelle's relative immediately started again because that relative was still living in the home. At 17, Michelle met a boy at school who actually paid attention to her, and she felt what it was like to be kissed in a loving way and to have someone just genuinely interested in her for the first time in her life. Michelle and the guy started sleeping together, and she soon discovered that she was pregnant. But she also found out that her guy had another girlfriend at a different school. Oh, wow. So Michelle ended things, but she never did tell him that she was pregnant. 
and Michelle had to tell her mother who wasn't happy, but Michelle insisted that it was her choice and that she was keeping this baby. Once Michelle's stomach started to show, she dropped out during her 10th grade year, and on October 24, 1999, Michelle gave birth at age 18 to a baby boy that she named Joseph, but Joey for short. Although she was really young when she gave birth to her son, she was determined to be the best mother that she could be and to provide for her son and give him everything that she never had. So in June of 2002, Michelle left her two-year-old son Joey with her mother while she went to apply for jobs so she could support her son. When she returned, she found that in a drunken rage, her mother's boyfriend had grabbed Joey's right leg, resulting in a fracture to little Joey's knee. Yeah, her parents had, I forgot to say that, but her parents had separated at some point. Mm-hmm. So her mom had a boyfriend. Anyway, so when Michelle got home, she took Joey to the hospital. But we already know hospitals are full of mandatory reporters for child abuse. So Michelle told the staff that Joey had fallen in the park because she was scared that if she told them the truth, she would lose custody of her son. However, the caseworkers already knew what happened because. Michelle's mom's boyfriend's sister had already called the hospital and explained what happened. So the hospital contacted social services and once he was released from the hospital, Joey was placed into a foster home until Michelle could provide a safe place for her son to live. On August 23rd, 2002, Michelle Knight was on her way to a case management meeting with social services so she could work the steps in her case plan in order to get her son back. Unfortunately, the family member who was supposed to give her a ride canceled at 11 a.m., so Michelle started walking and looking for the address, trying to make it on time for her 2.30 p.m. appointment. While walking, Michelle realized she was lost and she was running out of time to make it to her appointment. So she stopped at a family dollar store and asked for directions to the address of her meeting. Michelle recognized one of her friend's fathers in the store and he overheard her, her ordeal and he offered to drive her because he knew where that address was and he told her it would only take them about five minutes to get there. Michelle had literally one thing on her mind at that point and that was making this appointment so she could get her son back. So she accepted her friend's father's help. Unfortunately for Michelle, this man was Ariel Castro and he had no intentions of actually helping Michelle. Once Michelle got into Castro's car, he started telling her how his daughter was at their house, his daughter that was friends with Michelle, and Michelle said it would be nice to see her, and Michelle was like, yeah, but do we have time, you know, and he's like, she's like, I really need to get to this appointment, he's like, oh, it'll only take a second. So they pulled up to the Castro residence, and Ariel told Michelle that, hey, we have some puppies inside, you know, like do you want one? You know, if you want one, you can have one. It'd be great for you to give your son a puppy when you get him back. And Michelle was like, yeah, you know, sure. So, but once Michelle got close enough to the door, Castro grabbed her and shoved her into a room and told her, quote, you're not going to leave for a long time, end quote. Then he started undressing himself. Michelle knew what was about to happen so she started begging Castro to let her go because she needed to get her son because if she missed this meeting, she would lose him. 
Castro then took the picture Michelle had of her son and ripped it up in her face and told her that she'll never see him again. Castro then bound Michelle with an extension cord around her legs, then around her arms, and then around her neck. Finally, he gagged her with a nasty gray sock and wrapped duct tape around her head to hold the sock in place so she couldn't scream. Next, Castro proceeded to masturbate in front of Michelle. Then he ejaculated onto her shorts. Then he took a second extension cord and hung Michelle from a clothesline that was attached to two poles in the room where he assaulted her. Um, he told Michelle he was going to get them food. Then he put a radio on the dresser at like maximum volume. And then he just left Michelle hanging there. And so like from my understanding, Michelle was basically like hogtied. You know, with her hands and her feet bound behind her back. And that's how he hung her. So and left her hanging there. I want to say it was in like 2014, so it was probably not even a whole year um, after they escaped. Mm-hmm. But um, I want to say it was like a movie. I don't know if it was Lifetime or whatever. Yeah, there is a Lifetime. And movie. that was like the opening scene, and mm-hmm. it literally that is exactly what it was. Was like she was hogtied, mm-hmm. face down. Mm-hmm. So like her her knees were like bent Bit. up. Mm-hmm. And her hands were behind her back, and she was, like, floating with her stomach facing the ground. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's exactly... That's how she described it on the 2020 episode. Like, that's where I took that description from. Mm Mm-hmm. I I, I did see that there was a Lifetime movie. I think it was mostly about Michelle's story, I think. Um, But I didn't didn't watch it. Because Lifetime movies are so hit or miss, I feel like. They're either... They're either really good or they're just really bad. Are you looking up the name of it? Cleveland Abduction. It was in 2015. 2015, yeah. I did know that existed. I just didn't get around to watching it. Yeah, with Taryn Manning. Yep, that's the one. Taryn Manning played Michelle, right? Mm, I don't know. Oh. I think she did. <laughs> I think Michelle briefly mentioned it in the book that I read. Either She either talked about it in the book or the 2020 episode. I don't remember which... Um, which one it was i don't know that it was a lifetime movie i think it aired on lifetime oh gotcha oh it is a distributor lifetime oh okay but the production company was sony so oh okay if that has any i'll have to it i'll have to watch it i just didn't i mean taryn manning is but like how horrific is that Mm -hmm. so michelle said she wasn't sure how long um okay i cannot call him ariel because i can't so because my name is ariel i i can't it's too close. The film is based on the memoir Finding Me. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's based on her book. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, in my notes, I called him AC. So, that's what I'm going to call him for most of this. AC or Castro. I can't call him Ariel. I can't. I can't do it. So, Michelle wasn't sure how long AC left her hanging there, but she said it definitely felt like more than a day. And when he finally returned, he had McDonald's. And he ripped the duct tape off of her mouth, taking some of her hair with it. And he turned down the radio, then tried to shove the McDonald's sausage sandwich into her mouth while she was still hanging. Michelle refused to eat because she wasn't sure if he had poisoned the food or not, which, like, that's probably a good assumption. So, because Michelle refused to eat, AC got really angry, and he untied the cord attached to the, the clothes, clothesline, which sent Michelle crashing down to the floor. 
AC unwrapped the cord he had used to tie Michelle up. He then put her over his shoulder and brought her to the next room, where he threw her onto a dirty mattress on the floor, took off all her clothes. Then, as Michelle constantly screamed, he raped her for the next hour. And once he was done, he threw a few dollars down as quote-unquote payment for her services. What the fuck was she going to do with dollars if she was never going to fucking leave? Exactly. This dude is a sadistic fuck. So he gave Michelle her underwear and her shirt back. Then he drug her down to the basement. First of all, the basement door was uh, like chained and padlocked shut. So he had to like undo that. That's creepy. There was also like a bare ceiling light bulb down in the basement. Again, creepy. Like that's nightmare fuel. Like that is that is terrifying. Just the like the the individual light bulb just like swinging. That is like terrifying. Um, then he chained Michelle to a pole in the basement. Then put a motorcycle helmet backwards over her head so she couldn't see anything, and so no one could hear her if she screamed. Then he left her there for God knows how long. And when he finally returned, he brutally raped Michelle for three hours. And in her book, um, Michelle said that this rape was different than the first one. And AC forced her to do such horrible things that she couldn't even describe them. Once he was done, he threw more dollar bills at her. Then he chained her back to the pole, put the motorcycle and put the motorcycle helmet on her again. He would bring Michelle food from time to time and he gave her a green bucket that she could use as a bathroom. But one thing that he did consistently was rape her. He would come down to the basement three or four times a day to unchain and then rape Michelle. Once he was done, he'd chain her back up and leave her. Another tactic AC used was that he would always leave a radio playing as loud as possible so that even if she did scream, nobody would hear her over the radio. Um, And a lot of the time, AC would taunt Michelle and tell her that no one was looking for her because she wasn't on the news, so no one cared that she was missing. Because she had run away before, Mm -hmm. so I guess her family just didn't report her missing. And he, like, constantly taunted her and rubbed that in her face. As if what he was doing to her wasn't bad enough. It was the psychological aspect of it, too. And Michelle said she wasn't sure how long he kept her in the basement, but she estimated it was months because it went from being hot in the summer to, like, a cold winter. Still in the same clothes. No shower, no nothing. Um... Then one day, AC brought Michelle upstairs, and he brought her back to the pink room where he strung her up that first day, but the poles and clothesline were gone. Instead, there was an old dingy mattress in the corner and a bucket with a piece of cardboard on top of it that she was to use as a bathroom, and there was also a combo lock and padlock with a chain attached to the wall. So he took the chain, wrapped it around Michelle's body, then attached it to the radiator. So then he raped and beat Michelle again. The sickest thing about AC was that he told Michelle he wanted her to be happy with him and he wanted them to be a family. What the ever loving, and I can't stress this enough, fuck. Like he kidnapped, beat, and raped this girl over and over, but he wants them to be a family? 
I don't. I can't even comprehend that level of fucking stupidity. Like, what? Like, what the fuck? So, where was his the friend? So, I'll get into that eventually. But she wasn't there. He lied and said that she was there. So Ariel and but that was her dad. Yes, but she didn't live with him. The parents, oh. him and the girl's mom, were like separated or divorced. Well, they were never officially married. They were, like, common-law married, but they were not together. So, like, the kids were not there. Like, he lived by himself, basically. Did they never go there? I'll get there. Yeah. Well, hurry the fuck up. That, that actually might not be till part two. Ha-ha. <laughs> I'm about to cut you off. Um, I just... Ugh. So, AC then forced Michelle to help him board up all the windows upstairs, and then he moved her to a different room that had blue walls. Eventually, he gave Michelle a notebook and pencil so that she could write her draw, and if you remember, I said her favorite thing to do was to draw, so, like, she was glad she finally had something to do. Um, and to keep herself from going crazy, Michelle would talk to her son, Joey, as if he was there. AC heard her once and told her to stop. So, Michelle started reminding AC at every opportunity that if she had that puppy he originally promised her, you know, when she came to the house, that she wouldn't have to talk to Joey. So, eventually, AC brought Michelle a little pit bull puppy and told her, um, and told her to make sure he only takes a dump in the box that he brought the dog in. So, Michelle named the puppy Lobo because he was low to the ground. And AC would usually take Lobo outside and chain him up in the backyard while he raped her. So he would take the dog out of the room. Until one night, a few months into Michelle having Lobo, so AC walked in and grabbed Michelle by her hair and started to drag her towards him. Lobo started barking and going nuts, trying to protect his mama. So AC yelled at the dog to shut up and then slapped Michelle in the face and told her to make the dog stop. Lobo lunged at AC's leg trying to bite him, but before he could, AC picked the dog up and broke his neck, (gasps) then threw the dog's limp body next to Michelle on the mattress. While he raped her, by the way. Like, how horrendous is that? You will never not convince me that he gave Michelle that puppy only to kill her right in front of her. Mm -hmm. Just as an example, like, that's how sadistic he was. Um, once he finished raping Michelle, he just threw Lobo's body over the back fence like a piece of garbage. Like, what? According to Michelle's book, you never really knew which version of AC you would get. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes he would do nice things like bring a radio, food, or a puppy. Other times, he was violent and would rape and beat her constantly. A real... Uh, Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation. He would do things like take all of Michelle's clothing so she was naked for four months oh in the dead God. of winter. No heat, no blankets, no clothes. Just a dirty mattress on the floor. It's a miracle Michelle didn't freeze to death. Around March, AC gave Michelle a TV and it gave Michelle a way to pass the time. 
Also in March, after eight months of captivity, AC finally allowed Michelle to shower in his disgusting bathroom. She hadn't showered in eight months. Um, Michelle said that the water running off of her body was black. And I, I can't even imagine, like, how that would feel. You know, mm-hmm. not showering for that long. Um, and she said that her hair was so knotty and matted with semen that she had to cut it off up to her ears. And she was shocked that he actually gave her scissors when she asked. So, one day in April 2003, Michelle was watching the news on her TV when she saw a report of a missing girl named Amanda Berry. Michelle actually knew... So, it had been about... From August 11, to April. Oh, August. Okay. Yeah. Nine months, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Eight or nine months. Um, Michelle knew where Amanda had gone missing from, wasn't that far from AC's house, and she had a sick feeling that AC had kidnapped Amanda, too. Michelle even recognized Amanda's picture on the news as a girl from one of her art classes. Even though Michelle was four years older than Amanda, she was so far behind in school that she often had classes with younger students, so she recognized Amanda, actually. Unfortunately, Michelle's intuition was correct. AC had kidnapped another girl. So, Amanda Berry's mom, Luana Miller, met Amanda's father, Johnny Ray Berry, when they were teenagers. And by the time Luana was 16, she was pregnant with Amanda's older sister, Beth. Luana and Johnny Ray were still together, but he often chose drinking and partying over being a father. Seven years later, Amanda was born. Um, Amanda's parents had a fairly tumultuous relationship, to say the least. Her father often beat Luana while they were both drunk, and police showing up to the home was not uncommon. Johnny was also in and out of jail for assaults and bar fights, like, on the reg. (laughs) And in order to celebrate Amanda's 13th birthday, her father brought her a joint and got her high for her 13th birthday. Also, when Amanda was 13, she picked up the home phone only to overhear her father talking to a woman who was not her mother. He was having an affair. So Amanda immediately told her mom about her dad's affair and Luana had finally had enough and she kicked Johnny Ray out. So two weeks later, Johnny Ray moved to Tennessee with his new girlfriend. But despite all of the drama at home, Amanda was determined to finish high school, but her public high school was pretty rough. Um, Fights in the hallway were like a common occurrence. So in 11th grade, Amanda stopped going But she signed up for a Cleveland Public Schools program that allowed students to complete their work from home and send it in to be graded. Like, basically homeschool, I guess. Amanda even paid $40 from each of her own checks from her part-time job at Burger King to cover the cost. So, Amanda was abducted the day before her 17th birthday. Uh, While walking home from her job at Burger King, she actually considered calling in that day but she was like you know what I'll just go to work tomorrow's my birthday you know I'll I'll be off on my birthday I'm just gonna go after her shift Amanda started the 10 minute walk home 
As she was walking, she noticed a maroon van pull into a driveway up ahead. The girl in the front seat looked familiar, familiar to Amanda, but she couldn't place her. Um, as she continued walking, the van pulled up right next to her and asked if she needed a ride home. When Amanda saw the middle-aged man driving, she knew she'd seen him before, so she felt comfortable accepting a ride from him. And as it turns out, Amanda worked at Burger King with Ariel Castro's son, Ariel Anthony, but he went by Anthony. And she also went to middle school with his daughter, Angie. So while they were driving, um, Amanda decided to make conversation and he asked, she asked AC how Angie was doing and AC took the opportunity and used the same ruse he used to lure Michelle into his home. He replied, oh yeah, Angie's actually at my, at the house and would you like, you know, do you want to go see her? Amanda was like, yeah, sure. Like I haven't seen her in a while. Well, while they drove, AC mentioned Amanda's cell phone. She had, like, a new cell phone, and she was, like, had it in her hand, I guess, like, playing with it. And he mentioned, oh, that's a really nice cell phone. Well, when they pulled up to the house, he brought up the phone again. And he was like, hey, can I see your phone? Like, you know, I've been thinking about getting one, whatever. Not thinking much of it, she handed her phone to him. So they walked into the house using the back door, and AC told Amanda that, oh, Angie, his daughter, must be taking a bath. So he offered to give Amanda a tour of the house. Not wanting to be rude, you know, she accepted. And he showed her upstairs and pointed to a room with a closed door and made a comment about how his roommate was sleeping in there. Amanda told 2020 that there was what looked like a peephole into the room, but it was actually where a door handle should have been. And... She looked in and saw a young woman sitting on a bed watching TV. We now know that this woman was Michelle Knight, but Amanda didn't know that at the time. Um, but Amanda said she didn't look for too long because she felt, like, real creepy. You know, like, voyeuristic. Um, Castro took Amanda to the next or AC took Amanda to the next room, which was really dark inside because all the windows were boarded up. But when Amanda turned to leave... AC blocked the door. He then yelled at Amanda to pull down her pants. Amanda told 2020 that's when she knew she was in trouble. She yelled back no and told him she need, that he needed to take her home now. And he just yelled at her again, telling her to pull her pants down. Amanda started crying while she did what he told her. AC started masturbating in front of her. And once he was done, he told Amanda she could pull up her pants and that he's going to take her home now. Is anyone surprised that he didn't, though? Amanda started screaming and tried to run away, but all the doors were locked. So AC grabbed her, threw her onto a mattress in the room, and raped her. Afterwards, he put duct tape over her mouth, then taped her wrists together, and then her ankles. He put a motorcycle over Amanda's head, then slung her over his shoulder and carried her down to the basement, where he chained her with a padlock to a pole. He took off the helmet and set a black and white TV on a stool. He told her not to try to get away, then he left her there in the basement. Amanda immediately put her hands up to her face and ripped the tape off of her mouth, then she slowly chewed the tape off of her wrist, so then she freed her ankles. She struggled against the chain around her waist, but it was no use because it wouldn't budge. The next morning, AC came back with Burger King breakfast, but told her she needed to shower first. How, like what a slap in the face that he came back with 
Burger King breakfast. Mm -hmm. And that's where she worked. The audacity. So he brought Amanda upstairs and forced her to take a shower. But he forced her to take a shower with him. Like, no thanks. I don't... I would be Mm -hmm. like, no thanks. Like, that makes... Ugh. He then gave her breakfast, brought her upstairs briefly, then put her back down in the basement, chained to the pole again. Eventually, after two nights down in the basement, he allowed Amanda to have a room upstairs. But don't get too excited. He had her chained to a radiator with five feet of chain that she could use to move around. She told 2020 that it was hard to get comfortable to sleep at night because whether you laid on your back or your stomach, there was always a part of the chain or the lock underneath your body. He had a bucket in the room for her to use the bathroom. Amanda told Robin Roberts that it just smelled horrible and the mattress was also really old and gross. AC brought her food once a day if she was lucky. Once she was done eating, he'd demand she'd strip and then he'd rape her. On day four, AC brought Amanda downstairs to watch TV. AC, being the piece of shit fucking prick that he is, would force Amanda to watch the news every single day at 5 or 5.30 so she would see her family on TV pleading for her to come home. Amanda said it seemed like he was enjoying seeing Amanda's family on the news and basically almost gloating that he was smarter than the police and everyone else looking for Amanda because he knew where she was. According to Amanda, AC would rape her four or five times every single day. So Amanda's mom and sister were actually on their way home from work. They both worked at like the same factory and they were on their way home at the same time Amanda was. So they were surprised when she wasn't there when they got home. So they called her phone and she didn't answer, which really worried them because that was so unlike her. They called all her friends, but no one had heard from her or knew where she was. Amanda was on her way home around 7.30 p.m., so her mom called 911 at 9 to report her daughter missing. Police took the report, but said Amanda hadn't been gone that long and they should just keep looking. Luana called back at midnight when Amanda hadn't shown up and two officers responded to her home just before 1 a.m. Officers took down Amanda's description, but assured Luana she probably had just run off with her boyfriend and that she would be back. Luana vehemently disagreed and told them Amanda would never stay out this late without calling. And I hate this. Like, we see this all the time, but that just doesn't make sense to me. Like, when someone calls to report their child missing, just take the report and shut the hell up. Like, I'm fairly certain a parent knows their child better than anyone especially a random-ass police officer. Like, I just hate when they're like, oh, she's probably just, like, she's fine. She'll be back. Like, you don't know that. Yeah. That um, drives me nuts. Yeah. Or, or when it hasn't been long enough, there's no such right. thing as that. Um, or especially, like, if there's no history of, like, them running away. The worst is when they're 18 and you can right. legally cannot do anything. Yeah. You're an adult. You can disappear if you want to. The only, I think the only stipulation that would help is that if they made some kind of statement that um, put them in danger, you know. Oh, right. Like, indicated that they wanted to harm themselves or something like that. Right. 
But, like, if a parent calls to report their child missing and they tell the police it's not like them to take off, like, or whatever the case may be, the police need to listen. Like, that drives me insane. Like, I'll relax now. But, like, that just really makes me angry. Anyway, the following morning, Luana and Amanda's sister, Beth, put up homemade flyers with Amanda's picture, a handwritten description of Amanda, and Luana's phone number because she didn't trust the police to take all the tips seriously. So she personally wanted to be the one taking the tips. And that just, ugh. So the morning after Amanda went missing, Detective Rich Russell arrived at work to find the 1 a.m. report on the missing girl on his desk. Luana had already called the station to check on the status. After Detective Russell reviewed the report and saw Amanda had never run away, he and his partner went back to Luana's home to interview her again. When asked if there was anyone who might have been angry enough to hurt Amanda, Luana immediately mentioned Amanda's 16-year-old weed-dealing boyfriend, DJ. Luana had already gone to DJ's home and banged on his door, demanding to know where her daughter was, but through the chained door, DJ swore he didn't know. Like, he wouldn't even open the door. He left the chain on it and barely peeked through to talk to her. That is, like, suspicious as hell. Like, we obviously know he didn't do it. Oh, right. right, right. Now we know that, but, like, at the time, that's suspicious. Like, you're not even going to open the door fully for your girlfriend's mom and she's missing? Yeah. I don't know. I know, like, hindsight is twenty twenty, but, like, it's, I don't know, it's strange. So, the detectives followed up with DJ, and they got a similar response. He said he had no idea where Amanda was. But, he seemed suspicious to police, so he was a good uh, person of interest. Detectives quickly had a second person of interest after speaking to Amanda's Burger King co-workers. There was a 35-year-old Hispanic man named Axel who would frequently, who would frequent the Burger King drive-thru just to see Amanda. That's creepy as fuck. Ultimately, though, police were never able to find anything concrete linking either person of interest to Amanda's disappearance. After Amanda's disappearance was featured on the news, police received numerous tips, but none ever really amounted to anything. Several tipsters claimed they saw Amanda working as a sex worker along the Broadway Avenue corridor, which is essentially Cleveland's red light district. Detectives began to stake out the area, and nine days after Amanda vanished, they spotted the girl tipsters had been calling about. However, when they got closer, they realized that she was not Amanda. Although the sex worker admitted people kept telling her that she looked like Amanda Berry. The next day, after Amanda had been missing for 10 days, detectives decided it had been long enough, and they called in the FBI for help. Tim, oh God, I'm going to butcher his last name, so I'm sorry. Kalonic? That's what it looks like. From the FBI's Cleveland field office began began assisting on Amanda's case. One week after Amanda disappeared, the phone rang at Luana and Beth's home, and they both raced to answer it, each picking up a receiver. A man said, I have Mandy. She wants to be here because we're married, but I'll have her home in a couple of weeks. Luana and Beth desperately begged this mystery caller to bring her back, but he hung up only to call back a minute later and say, don't worry, she's okay, and she'll be home. 
The calls were immediately reported to police, and a trace confirmed they had indeed come from Amanda's phone. Shut the fuck up. He called her fucking mother. Wow. Yeah, he called her fucking mother. Luana and Beth were shocked that the caller referred to Amanda as Mandy because only her close family and friends called her that. Meanwhile, at 2207 Seymour Avenue, which is AC's Aero Castro's home, he walked into Amanda's room holding her phone and informed her that he had just called her mother. Like, how sick can you be? Like, oh my god. So, once the FBI got involved, they called in an FBI engineer to assist with tracking Amanda's phone should her abductor turn it on again. You know, after they found out that the call actually did come from her phone. The engineer arrived on May 8th, 2013. My 13th birthday. Just saying. But with him, he brought large suitcases which held a mobile computer lab. And according to her phone records, Amanda's phone was turned on repeatedly the night she went missing and the next day. They also found someone was calling to listen to her voicemails. When the FBI traced the last signal from Amanda's phone, which was the night Luana received the call, it bounced between two cell towers, one on each side of I-90, covering like 40 square blocks. Hopeful the caller was still in the area, the FBI set up a dusty-ass, dingy van in the parking lot of a family dollar store at Clark Avenue and West 30th Street, where they fired up the signal tracking equipment hoping Amanda's phone would turn back on so they could act fast. The FBI team continued their 24-hour, round-the-clock stakeout for eight days, but Amanda's phone was never turned on, so they assumed it had died. Oh, God, this part gets me. The saddest part is what the FBI didn't, couldn't have known at the time. They were 1,000 feet from Ariel Castro's house where Amanda was being held captive. Not only that, the family dollar store they were set up in the parking lot of is the same family dollar Ariel abducted Michelle Knight from nine months earlier. So they were like so close yet so far away, you know? After about a week, Amanda asked for something to write on. So AC brought her a journal, which Amanda started writing in as an escape. Shortly after getting her journal, Amanda decided she needed to somehow record each time she was raped. But she didn't want to use the word rape, just in case AC ever read it. So she started writing the number of times he raped her that day, followed by an X. So like, three times would be three X, four times would be four X. Most days were three or four, but some days were five. And she mainly did this because she was like, if I get out of here, I, I know that they're gonna wanna, they're gonna need something to know, mm-hmm. you know, like how many times. Like, what to charge him with, basically. And, spoiler alert, that's basically how they came up with the number of charges. Mm. Like, you know, years later. Like, her diaries were, like, pivotal mm-hmm. in, you know, um, them charging him. So, honestly, that's, like, genius. Like, I don't know if that I would have thought about that, you know? Mm-hmm. Occasionally... AC would bring Amanda's phone to her and allow her to listen to her voicemails, but only for a minute or two, but then he'd rip it away from her. And to me, that's worse than not letting her listen at all. Mm-hmm. 
which the FBI did say they knew someone was calling and listening to her voicemails. So, like, they knew that. Um, on May 1st, AC brought, Mich- brought Amanda into Michelle's room and introduced them. Then he forced Amanda to clean up the trash in Michelle's room. And he then brought Amanda downstairs and forced her to do his laundry. Then he brought her back upstairs and chained her up yet again. According to Amanda's recollection, AC didn't spend much on food for her, but he would buy her cigarettes and weed. Right. Okay. Right. She said getting high dulled the pain a bit, so she did it as often as she could. No doubt. Right? Yeah, I don't blame her. But of course, AC didn't give her anything for free. Cigarettes and weed in exchange for rape. Like, how horrific. For as cruel as he was, AC was also nice. And I use that word loosely. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes. He gave Amanda a TV, radio, CD player with an Eminem CD, who was her favorite artist. Playing cards, crossword puzzle books, coloring books. I'm not saying this asswipe is actually nice. Not at all. Just pointing out how fucked up he was and the mind games that he played. Like, oh, I'm going to rape you constantly, but here's some shit to keep you busy. Like, when I'm not violating you, Mm -hmm. you know, like. In August of 2003, AC attempted to kill Amanda in a fit of rage. According to Amanda, she was on her stomach, quote, while he does that really nasty thing again, it hurts so bad, end quote, which from context clues I'm assuming is anal rape. Mm-hmm. The pain became too much, so she screamed out, let me go home or kill me. AC stopped, sat her up, and asked if she wanted to die. She said, no, but I don't want to be here. If I was dead, at least I could see my family from heaven through sobs. Like, she was sobbing mm-hmm. while she said that. So, he go he went into the hall, then he came back with, like, this really old vacuum cleaner, and he started strangling Amanda with the cord. Holy shit. Right. Right as Amanda was about to pass out and had basically accepted, you know, her fate, mm-hmm. he stopped, threw the vacuum onto the floor, and yelled, I'm not here to kill you. I don't want to kill you. This is just about my sexual problem. Then stormed out of the room. So he knows it's a problem. Right. Almost a year after Amanda was taken, Michelle saw another news report of a missing girl. This time, it was 14-year-old Gina De Jesus, and just like with Amanda, she had gone missing pretty close to AC's House of Horrors. Michelle basically knew AC had taken Gina, too. She She also recognized Gina because Michelle had gone to school with Gina's older sister. Michelle's fears were confirmed that night when she heard a girl's screams coming from the basement. Amanda also saw the report of Gina's disappearance on the news and got a sick feeling that AC took her too. And you could actually see the Burger King where Amanda worked from where Gina was last seen. Just like Michelle's gut feeling about AC having Amanda was correct, Michelle and Amanda's feelings about AC having Gina were correct as well. So like, I feel like his quote-unquote hunting ground was all in like a very close vicinity Mm -hmm. of each other and to his house so april 2nd 2004 was a normal day for 14 year old georgina gina lynn de jesus her dad drove her to school and it was just like any other day 
When school was over, Gina saw her friend, Arlene Castro. Yeah, his one of his daughters. So he had a son and three daughters. Mm-hmm. And Arlene was, I think, the youngest, maybe, one of them. So Gina saw her friend Arlene as she was walking out and asked if she wanted to go ice skating because it was Friday. The girl started walking towards the ice skating rink, but then Gina remembered that she was grounded because three weeks prior, her parents had caught her smoking cigarettes in her room. But Gina figured she could still have people over. So Arlene and Gina walked to a nearby payphone so Arlene could ask her mom if she could go over to Gina's house. But Arlene's mom said no and that she needed to go home. So the girls hugged goodbye and started walking in opposite directions. After walking about a block, a Jeep Grand Cherokee stopped and rolled the window down to talk to Gina. Gina immediately recognized the man driving as her friend Arlene's dad, Ariel Castro. So all these girls like recognized him, so they felt comfortable, you know, because they knew his kids. Mm-hmm. So he asked Gina if she had seen Arlene. Gina told him she just went that way and pointed in the direction that her friend had just walked. So he asked if Gina could help him find her. She told him she couldn't have gotten far, but he still asked for her help. Gina thought it was a little odd, but it was her friend's dad, you know, Mm -hmm. so she got in the vehicle. She told AC to turn the car around, but he kept driving straight in the wrong direction. Gina asked what was going on, and AC told her he needed to stop at his house to get some money. He pulled into his driveway and told Gina he was going to get his money and he'd be right back. When he returned moments later, he asked Gina if she could help him move a speaker into his car. Gina agreed and walked into the back door to help him. By this point, we already know there's no speaker. Once inside, AC told Gina to sit at the kitchen table for a minute. He went into the he he went into the bathroom and when he came back, he tried to touch Gina's breast so she flipped out and asked what he was doing and told him that he needed to take her home. AC told her, "Yeah, I'll take you home, but we have to go downstairs to get back outside." He took Gina down to the basement and chained her to the same pole he had previously chained Michelle and Amanda. AC shoved a dirty rag into her mouth then put duct tape over it. Once she was chained up, AC pulled down his pants and masturbated in front of Gina. When he was done, he just walked back upstairs. A few minutes later, he came back down with a radio that he blared so loud so that no one could hear her screams, if she could even scream while she was gagged. AC returned the next day with rice and beans his mother cooked, but Gina refused to eat. So he left, then he came back with McDonald's that Gina reluctantly ate because she was so hungry. Then, AC took Gina upstairs into the the dining room, and this is weird. In his dining room, there was like a twin bed pushed against the wall, but there was like this weird wooden box like over the bed. Like, she said it it almost looked like some kind of like fort for like a kid, Uh but it was over the bed. So he told her he chained Gina to the bed frame and then he ordered her to climb into it and he followed her. AC started touching Gina, grabbing her breast, but then he fell asleep. So he didn't he didn't rape her that first day. I mean he assaulted her, you know, but he didn't actually rape her. So Gina's parents 
Nancy Ruiz and Felix. Felix. Is it Felix? Uh-huh. Felix de Jesus were frantic when Gina didn't make it home. Her mother was expecting her by 3.30 at the latest. When Gina wasn't home by 4, Nancy walked to the corner store Gina frequented to ask if anyone had seen her, but no one had. She also started calling her daughter's friends, but no one knew anything. By 5.30, Nancy called 911 and an officer was dispatched. Nancy gave him a photo of Gina, but he didn't take it seriously and said she was likely out with a boyfriend. Despite Nancy telling the officer her daughter didn't have a boyfriend and she wouldn't have just not come home, the officer just told Nancy he was he was sure Gina would show up. Here we go again with these fucking cops thinking they know missing children or teenagers better than their own parents. It's fucking bullshit. Like, do better. A few minutes later, Felix got home and Nancy told him Gina was missing. So her dad drove to the school and checked the grounds. And then he drove the route that Gina would have taken home. Just, you know, just trying to retrace her steps. Gina's older brother, Ricky, drove around town in his own car looking for her as well. By 7.30, Gina's family was, like, freaking out. They started canvassing the area on foot with no luck. The next day, Cleveland Police Lieutenant Marge Laskowski arrived at 2.30 for a shift, and she was assigned to follow up on Gina, so she spent an hour talking to Gina's mother, Nancy. Lieutenant Laskowski had worked on lots of missing children's cases, and she said most would turn up, but she felt this one was different. So when she returned to the station, she told a detective, quote, this is bad. I think this one is real, end quote. To which he reply, replied, quote, oh, don't worry, Lieutenant. I guarantee, I guarantee you she'll be home before midnight, end quote. Lieutenant Laskowski disagreed and went directly to District Commander Gary Gingle, who assigned detectives to the case. When Brian Heffernan heard about Gina's disappearance on Saturday, he had a gut feeling her abduction was related to Amanda's. So he called Tom Kalanick at the FBI with whom he had been working on Amanda's disappearance for the last year. The two interviewed Gina's parents on Sunday. Gina's disappearance was quickly all over the news and within 48 hours, news reports were already speculating Gina and Amanda's cases were related. I guess, is that like a common thing? What? Like that they suspect cases are related? I mean, I guess it was like a year apart. They they were both teenagers. They both went missing from similar parts of town, you know? Yeah, I don't know that it's a common thing, but the two were very similar. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't, like, look alike or anything. No, and they don't have to. Oh, yeah. No. Um, Some of them is just That's typically in, in like, serial killer yeah. type crimes. Um, right, like, they have a type. Yeah, but with missing, you know, children mm-hmm. or kidnapped people mm-hmm. um, in the same area, like... Right. So, like, for instance, Derek Todd Lee, his area was much broader. Mm-hmm. Even though it was still in Baton Rouge, it wasn't within the same, what, eight blocks. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I think um, that's kind of when they start to zero in on yeah. something like that. So, police and FBI tirelessly searched the neighborhood, retraced Gina's steps, and interviewed Arlene Castro, the last person to see Gina, as well as her mother, Gramilda Figure. Oh, God. Figueroa? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As well as her mother, Gramilda Figueroa, Ariel Castro's ex. So, 
Early in Gina's disappearance, police focused on Arlene Castro's stepfather, Fernando Colon. He worked as a security guard at West Town Square near the payphone where the girls went their separate ways. And Arlene walked to his, his workplace and Cologne gave her a ride home. But the drive was only a few blocks. So the FBI assumed that he could have dropped Arlene at home and then doubled back for Gina. Five days after she went missing, the FBI brought Cologne in for questioning. They searched his office and car and even did luminol testing for blood, but came up with nothing. According to Cologne, he told the FBI they needed to talk to Arlene's biological dad, Ariel Castro, because he was a violent man and he also knew Gina. But the FBI insists that Cologne never brought up Ariel Castro. So, I mean, that could just be the FBI trying to cover their ass because, you know, it ended up being him. Right. Or it could also be Cologne just saying that, oh, I did say that. I mean, who knows, Mm -hmm. you know. Three weeks after Gina's disappearance, the FBI hired a psychologist to hypnotize 13-year-old Arlene Castro to see if she would remember anything else. But they didn't have any luck. She told the psychologist the same exact story that she had already told police. Gina eventually realized that AC used to pass her a lot on the street. And that he would always wave to her. Like, he would make it a point, you know, to wave to her. He even talked to her parents at a Christmas concert the year before. She asked AC if he was following her, and he admitted that he had been. Fucking gross. She's 14. She's 14 years old. Um, AC brought Gina up from the basement sometimes and let her watch TV with him. But when he went to work, he would lock her back up in the basement again. She finally asked him if there was anywhere else she could stay because she hated the basement. He told her that he had rooms upstairs, but he would have to clean up first. Two days later, AC moved Gina upstairs to a room with dirty yellow walls and chained her to the radiator. Gina saw reports about herself on the news and saw her parents pleading for her safe return. She also saw Amanda on the news and realized that she looked like a picture taped to a mirror in her room. She questioned AC about it, but he just said that that was an ex-girlfriend. But he eventually admitted that he had kidnapped Amanda and showed Gina Amanda's room. He also told her about Michelle and showed her Michelle's room too, but neither girl saw Gina. I guess he probably showed like through the door handle mm-hmm. where the door handle was. So about a month after he took Gina, AC asked if she was a virgin. She told him, of course, she was only 14. And he told her, quote, when we have sex, I'm going to get like 100 points because you're a virgin. End the quote. fuck? Is this fucking family feud? What do you mean? Right. What? Yeah. Then he took her down to the living room, started undressing, ordered her to undress, and then raped her. So, for the first, like, month, he didn't rape Gina at first. He, like, assaulted her. But, you know, he didn't actually rape her until a month after he had her. She fought, screamed, and cried, but it was no use. He was much bigger than her, and he easily overpowered her. Once he finished raping her, he stood up, got dressed, and told Gina they had to celebrate because it was her first time. 
That's disgusting. Oh, it gets worse. He walked into the kitchen, then came back with red wine and two glasses. Then he said to her, quote, now you'll never forget me. I was your first and you never forget your first, end quote. What the fuck? Like, as I was researching, I told Ryan, my husband, this. Because it was just one of those things that, like, you have to tell somebody, you know, as you're reading it. And he said, well, now I'm going to take a shower because I feel fucking gross. Like, and I relate to that. Like, what? What? Once he started raping Gina, he would do it three or four times a day. And he would make her say things like, I love it. I want it. You're so sexy. And if she didn't, he'd make it hurt more. What's crazy to me is all three girls have said it was three or four times a day. So he is raping them collectively nine to 12 times a day. Right. That's disturbing. Yeah. He... When he gets arrested, he had, he says that he has... He, he's already mentioned his sexual problem. Problem, yeah. He says that he's addicted to porn and he's a sex addict. And I mean, apparently sex addicts do want sex that many times a day. But that's insane. I guess I never thought about it like that, but yeah. Homeboy, you got two hands. Right. You get you do- a blow-up doll pocket pussy or something. I was about to say, you better go get you a pocket pussy. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Like, and what's... Do you know what he looks like? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, And what's crazy is these these girls were, like, his daughter's age. Yeah. Right. What the, yeah. Exactly. Like, the same age as his kids. That's fucking gross. I can't. Ew. Ew, David. <laughs> I don't know what that's from. Oh, it's from Shit's Creek. I don't watch that. Oh, my God. Um, according to Gina, AC would also give her, like, cigarettes and alcohol occasionally, just like Amanda. But, like, I don't know, man. I- and, like, yeah, they said that, like, it didn't come for free, but, like, like, he'd rape them for the cigarettes and the weed, but, like, that he'd also rape them for breathing, so... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. It's not okay. No. It's never a good reason. Ever. Ever. To rape someone. Ever. Can I just fight him? Can you just fight him? No, you can't, because... Because I can fight. I can... Because <laughs> I can fight. <laughs> a quote by Ariel's seven-year-old daughter. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Because I can fight. Like, who the fuck are you? I know. Well, um, I hate to do this to you guys, but uh, this is where we're going to end it for part one. Um, Just kind of the most, like, cohesive place that I found to kind of cut it. So, in part two, we'll talk more about what life was like in that hellhole for these three women and eventually how they made their miraculous and heroic escape from this monster's clutches and like where they are today what kind of impact they've made um so make sure you come back next time to hear the conclusion of this case um and also fuck you ariel castro period
wasn't the like was it cuba cuba cuba's like president or wasn't He's, he a castro was it cuba Fidel. Fidel Castro? Yeah. Is that Puerto Rico or Cuba? No, it's Cuba. I don't know if they're related, if that's what you're asking. But yes. Okay. I hate that his name's Ariel. Did you just hiss? I did. Okay. Anyways, y'all. We don't claim him. part one of the horrific Cleveland kidnappings. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, rate and review us. We're going to read them. You already know what it is. Follow us on Instagram at Homicide Homegirls, uh, Facebook at Homicide Homegirls Podcast, and Twitter at Homegirls Pod. If you want to suggest an episode, um, don't use the form. <laughs> Nobody uses the form. Just, just message us. Yeah, just shoot us a message. Holla Email. at your girl, whatever. You know the drill. Yeah. Well, y'all have to wait. What? two weeks but amanda's about to get part two like right now so sorry (laughs) amanda's just making a face at me yeah all right well bye bye